Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We're presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Do you remember when you knew you wanted to be a writer, when you wanted to try and make a living with words? Because that seems an impossible thing to think about making a living at if you're thinking about money. I got to make money. Uh, You know, I I think one of the gifts my my folks gave me is that I I was never um, financially driven, you know, Um, and and comes from being upper middle class, you know, and, 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 and being born and privileged in that way. The, as far as uh, the writing aspect goes, a lot of the stuff I do is, is, is about mentors. And a uh, story I don't tell a lot is when I was a, a, a high school kid, all I cared about was, you know, finding free beer and playing sports. And, uh, you know, in between when you're on a team and couldn't drink and couldn't smoke pot, you would, you know, uh, 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 just fill all your dead time with nothing. And there was a... My buddy, who played uh, college football, another big guy, we used to just sneak out of high school and drink beers at Peach Lakes across the street. And uh, there was an English teacher, and he had to write stories, and uh, uh, you know, for the class and stuff. And he said, "Hey, why not two days a week instead of going and being fuck ups and coming back here to high school buzzed? You guys meet me and my free period, and we just shoot the shit about movies, TV, whatever." And uh, he was an amazing guy. His name was Bob Cox. I named the character Dr. Cox and Scrubs after him. And when I was a junior in high school, he said, you're not a great student, but every time you write dialogue, and he had been a journalist at one point, he's like, it's really, really good. And I don't know how you can make a living out of this, but there's a thousand different ways you know, to pursue writing. He's the first guy that said, you can do this one thing in school that you don't hate uh, as, uh, and make a living at it. And I got stuck in my head. And I started consuming television and films and stand-up comedy like a crazy person. And uh, uh, I can't tell you how lucky I was, man. I, I literally went out after college knowing nobody west of the Mississippi, you know, and, and, and just got really, really lucky really fast. That's all it took to make me think that I could write. It was never career-based. It was just a high school teacher making me care about words and telling me I was good at something. It could have been anything at the time. I had no idea what I wanted to be, but why do you choose mentors so often as a theme? Because, you know, I, I, man, what a, what a gift that we don't talk about enough. And, you know, I will tell you as I get deeper into the business, um, I bet you have this, whether it's in radio or podcasting or journalism you cross paths with men and women that were, you just said it about Anquan Bolden when we were talking a little before, that were just as talented, if not more so than you, but nobody tapped them on the shoulder and said, I'll help you find your way, you know? And uh, uh, man, the weirdest thing about going out to LA to do it, to try and make it in any you know fashion in the arts 
is you are immediately, if you're social, in a pack of other people, like-minded people trying to do the same, men and women. And you will go, wow, she's an amazing actress. She's an amazing director. He's an amazing writer. And 10 years later of that group of 10, there's usually one other person still there. You know, everybody Because just, what is it? Is it the machine? Chews the, they, you up? Well, if you can't get in, you get flushed out fast because it is an expensive place to live. And it is a grind to live there if you don't get in past the door. Um, and uh, uh, every year, another 20,000 people that want to do what you're doing, they're a year younger than you come out. It's just an ongoing cycle. You didn't do struggle and fear then? You get there and you just uh, immediately get lucky? Uh, you don't, like, uh, I mean, even <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton talks about like running out of money and eating baked potatoes for, for a month because... Because you just go out there with a dream and you think you can get in the rooms and then all of a sudden you realize it's expensive and you don't have money. Right. Look, the the, the biggest benefit, and I think everybody has to uh, acknowledge, you know, um, getting out there knowing that if you can't make your rent for a couple months, you can call dad and he'll go, I'll help you out. But if you can't make it work in six months, you have to split. That is such a leg up, you know, on, on so many people that are out there. Um, I got out there at 21. I was doing stand-up and making no money and uh, painting houses and uh, living in a really shitty apartment. But wait a minute. Fun. Are you choosing at this point? Do you think you're a stand-up comic? Yeah, yeah. I went out there. I thought I was going to be a, a, a stand-up comic or, and, and uh, wasn't sure about comedy writing. Even harder than writing then. Even harder than merely writing, even though I know stand-up comedy is writing as well. But you're choosing not just the hardest path. Of, this isn't about a high school teacher telling you that you're a good writer. You have now chosen, no, I want to be the best writer. I want to be someone uh. who can stand in front of people with the expectation of funny and still make them laugh. You know what? It's... It's just what you fall in love with as a kid, though, right? So to me, when I started burying myself in it, the the different uh, comics, I just fell in. I fell in love with TV and film, but I also fell in love with these stand-ups, you know, and and could still do their bits verbatim and still follow it to this day. Uh, it's an easy, painful lesson to learn when you get out there, because in LA, you know, I, I got to a point that I, I knew I could probably do it and, and get paid to do it, not just do open mics, but you would still on a random night be somewhere where you'd be like, oh, I did really well. And then the next person you would see, you would go, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That person is just ridiculous. No, and who is that person? Because if you start giving the names, you'll then, you'll realize that you're swimming as great as you are at what you do. Yeah. This, th there are... I mean, throughout the history of time, stand-up comedians, there are not that many who are great, and you've got them before you and after in the lineup because you're fighting the best now for what would be the future of comedy, yeah, right? Yeah. I, look, I was lucky that William & Mary is not a Hollywood school. It's where I went to college. Uh, and uh, uh, before me and after me, uh, two, two years older than me was John Stewart, and one year younger than me was Patton Oswalt. And so when I got out to L.A., what was really interesting was going, oh, I want to be a comic, you know, and then seeing those guys making it happen very quickly, you know, whether you're huge fans or not, both of them had such a specific voice. You know, they weren't just standing up telling jokes, you know, and you could see not a lot of people know that Jon Stewart before The Daily Show was a comedian. But even then you could go, oh, this dude, you know, whatever he finds, he's going to crush it. You know, he's just going to crush it. And you don't lack for confidence. So you're arriving at, you You come in, I don't know if it's irrationally confident, but you have good reason to think because you've stacked successes on top of each other without a great deal of struggle to think that you could do that too, that you could be a stand-up comic who made a good living that way. What deterred you? That? Was yeah, it the realization? I the can realization. see these people are better than I am. The best metaphor 
for my my business, which people don't realize, is uh, professional sports and uh, or sports in general. You can think you're a good high school basketball player, and then I always tell people this one story. Uh, I was a, a really good tennis player in high school. I thought I was going to play in college. It helped me get into school. Uh, I got there, and uh, you play these little ladder match things in the summer. And uh, I, I played against one of the guys in the, the team. And William and Mary is not a great program, but they recruit from South America. And I'm tall, and I have a big serve. <clears throat> and I'm like, oh, I'm going to serve this guy off the, the court. And I remember, you know, being 18, and the guy across the way was probably five, three, five, four, fast. And I served a big serve down the tee, and he took one step and just flicked it by me. And I just remember going, oh, no. <laughs> you said it out loud. And you were confident when you unle you unleashed a bomb at him. You're going to dwarf this little man with your big serve, and he flicks it back at you. And, and, and just you're, casually, you're, not even a big moment for him. Just casually walks to the ad side, and and you, you, in your head you go, "Oh, that 18 years I spent practicing this sport meant nothing." What? Oh uh, no! And to feel that in comedy, though, to to walk up on a stage and then have John Stewart follow you, or or just or just even go out and go, oh, there's an open mic later tonight at uh, eleven when no one's here, and so I'll be here at nine o'clock, and you're watching somebody that is your age, and they're doing something, they're not standing there telling jokes they wrote, even if they're trying material out, you're like, I could watch this person talk for an hour. This is insane. This is not going to be my path. You know? Do you agree? Uh, I think Neil Brennan has said this on South He's Beach so funny, Sessions. By the way. Yeah, yeah. He's great. And he just says, stand-up is the hardest thing. More hardest than, thing in the world. More than directing, more than, in, more than in, anything. In, in all of entertainment, that it is the hardest thing. It is. Uh, I'm so in awe of the men and women that crush at it. I still um, act like a fan uh, uh, I am not tongue-tied around athletes, uh, celebrities, act anything. Um, the iconic comedians, you know, it, I, I'd still find it's. I find it so amazing to just be you and uh, a mic and uh, uh, and knowing from trying it a couple times how bad it can go, man, and how painful well, I, it is. That's why I think it's brave, though. The expectation, like I really do think I can't do it uh, and can't even imagine myself summoning the courage to think about doing it, even if even if I thought that my writing was funny. That doing that in front of people with the expectation of funny is is terrifying. Oh, it's me. horrifying. The uh, uh, but look, it, 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 I'm lucky that I wasn't good. Because it got chased out. You know what happened is uh, uh, very young. It's my first big break. Two guys named one of them's passed away. Did you ever see that uh, movie Man in the Moon about uh, uh, Jim Carrey playing Annie Kaufman? Yes. Um, Danny DeVito played one of my managers. Uh, I got signed by these two older guys, George Shapiro and Howard West, and they managed only stand-up comics: Jerry Seinfeld, Andy Kaufman, in the day. You know, and when the dude signed me, it was really interesting. Um, uh, Howard West, who, who passed away, he said, uh, you're a very good uh, joke writer. You're a shitty comic. And uh, uh, he signed me as a writer. 
And he was kind of the guy that, that pushed my transition into writing stuff. Was he in the crowd or how did he make that assessment that, that there was something between the written word on the page and the delivery that the jokes are funny, but he's basically cutting through all the <laughs> bullshit, hitting you right in the heart with, hey, you're good at this part of it, yeah. but you're not going to figure out the other part of it of having whatever the charisma is needed to sell the funny jokes. Yeah, it was it was a weird moment because he, he those two guys, because they managed Seinfeld were the executive producers of that show. And I didn't have any representation. I was painting houses and stuff. And, and so, uh, uh, friends like, why don't you, you, you're, you know, I, I had a connection to them through someone my mom had worked for. Um, and I remember I, uh, I called him up. I'm like, Hey, I want you to read some stuff I wrote. Cause my buddy's like, why don't you write a couple Seinfeld scripts? Cause they produce a show. And, uh, I, I sent him a letter that said, uh, uh, if you read this, um, I know you get this uh, request 500 times a week. If you read it, I promise never to bother you again. Uh, and back in the old days, the first year of Seinfeld, there's also stand-up. Jerry would do stand-up at the beginning and end in the middle. So I wrote all the stand-up part. And uh, I think he here is one of his younger associates had seen me do stand-up before. And uh, he read it, and he's like, uh, hey, it's not bad. Um, keep working, but it's not for us. you know. And that was it. And then I'm like, yeah, screw it. And a week later, I wrote him a letter. I'm like, hey, I know what I promised last week, but if you read this new script, I promise you, this time I'm for real. I'll never bother you again. And uh, that cracked him up. He read the new thing and he, he literally called me back and he's like, hey, man, um, the stand up chunks you wrote for Jerry or, you know, he's never going to do. Them. He writes his own stuff, but they're really funny. And uh, people here have seen you do stand up before and you're a really good joke writer and a mediocre performer. And why don't you go write a bunch of scripts? And I did. And uh, this is the weirdest thing. When I handed them into him three weeks later, as 22 years old, I was on a staff of a TV show called Billy. And I was such a neophyte that the first three days there, I didn't have any money. And the first three days there, they come by every day at lunch and they're like, uh, a PA would be like, hey, what do you want for lunch? And I'd be like, no, I'm good. You know, and uh, it was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And then Friday, the showrunner, this older guy came in. And he's like, hey, fucko, we pay for lunch. And I'm like, oh, dude, I will have a Philly cheesesteak, you know, and fries and all that stuff. So it just happened. I got really, he, he mentored me and helped me. Is the same theme, you know? And you appreciate it so much that you insist on it being a weave through what it is that you are chasing in the inspirations. Like your your gratitude is such that you insist on it being a a place where you get some of your fuel. I, I, I don't know if I want to assume that this is like this for everybody. Okay, in that Hollywood has a bad rap, deservedly in some aspects. One of the good aspects of it, I think. Um, is that there's very few men or women who have made it that didn't get there at least in part because of the generosity and selflessness of a mentor figure. Someone has to. It, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Someone has to go, I find you valid. I'm going to help you. And, you know, my big joke that's coming around now is two of the youngest people I, I did this for, these guys named Chris Miller and Phil Lord, and they're now these huge titan. They, they did Into the Spider-Verse and the Lego movies. And when they were kids and animators, I thought they were so talented. And uh, we did a goofy cartoon together called Clone High. It was one of their first gigs. And they were so gracious and, and, and grateful about it. And they said, what can we do? And I said, all you owe me is you guys are the guys right when my last job happens because I'm no longer hireable, I get one more last job from you guys. You know what I mean? I get to, I get to be around it for another year because it's so fun. And so, so many people in Hollywood have this story 
that I think it's, you know, it would be a shame for people to not constantly kind of shine a light on it. I could, I could circle through Gary Goldberg. I created Spin City when I was 26 because Gary Goldberg passed away as well. Created Family Ties and Brooklyn Bridge and all these cool shows. Uh, he used to love basketball. I met him on the basketball court. He played Division One against Bill Bradley and all those guys. And we got to know each other in that environment. And he's like, you know, you can do this. You just got to learn how to play the game a little more. And he mentored me. And, you know, I, I, he essentially sent me to TV show writing camp and that there's nowhere to get taught that stuff. And I never would have learned it if somebody hadn't gone. What know. I thought of you, though, just from your previous work, not that I knew all of it, though, I would not have expected and could not have foreseen the idea that you, you strike me as your wit being barbed wire and <laughs> the idea that your greatest success would be marked by a syrupy, sweet, funny, gentle show uh, as you age into adulthood and learn whatever you've had to learn about love and parenthood and the wisdoms that come with age. It's funny and interesting and inspiring to see you age in a way that goes from barbed wire melting into something that is sweet because I couldn't have imagined that that's what the success would be just from what I knew about you from afar. No, you know, you must have this, man. All right. I've been talking about it a lot with my randomly. I was talking about this. I was smiling while Dan was saying that because I was talking about this topic with my daughter last night, which is the barbs. I think what comes with age. Do you remember that moment? If you're quick, you're so quick witted. And you remember that moment when you were younger that you realized it could be weaponized. You know what I mean? And that you could say, you know, it, it is both a weapon and a shameful thing to possess when your defense mechanism is I, I can um, pick somebody's weakness out, make a joke about it so that other people's hear it and hear it and laugh. And I can get validation from that. And, and, and it and can get you through high school and cover through, yeah. cover through some insecurities yeah. and get you. You could not get bullied because you're the guy who makes people laugh. Like, I don't so much of that. So much of funny comes from that. Without a doubt. And I, I told my daughter a story last night. And this is uh, uh, not a flattering story for me. But, uh, you know, everybody, you know, when you're at a dinner party and people bring up a topic like how many people here have been in the fight? How many people have been, people are all never surprised, but always when I hear the stories is I was definitely beaten up a couple of times as a kid. And it was always because of this. I told my daughter a story that there was a, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave names out. There's a high school party when I was a, a senior in high school and I uh, kissed a girl that I thought was single, but it turned out she was not single. She was back together with her boyfriend who was one of those, bullies that we all remember, but he was the kid from high school that would never leave town, that didn't go on to college, you know, and, and I zeroed in. I knew I was going to get beaten up because it was one of those horrible nights where everybody gathers outside of a party in a circle and they're going to watch you. It's like some rite of passage. And it's one of my friends have one funny version of this story that I'll tell you, but the, uh, uh, and so they're all circled us and I knew in my head, I'm like, all right, I'm going to let him hit me twice and then I'll, I'll go down and then hopefully it'll be over. He's a really big kid. And uh, he said, uh, go ahead, Lawrence, why don't you say something funny now? And I said, uh, uh, I said his name. I said, you know, I would say something funny, 
um, but someday you're going to be putting gas in my car. Oh, there it is. And I said, and I might need regular. And if you put, before I got to the word unleaded, he hit me so hard that my friend said, I was wearing Docksiders in Connecticut, shocker, that my friend said my Docksiders were still in the same place, but without my feet in them. <laughs> and because you had, the, just, you had just hit him from the height of, like with the movie line of condescension, the way that you would write it in a script if you were trying to be the dick yes. who was making yes. the, the young, the young man uh, infuriating him well, in a way that makes it earn that he hits you like here's that. the point of the story i go charlotte some people my daughter i could tell that as a, a a fun memory but when i was 24 i came home from la to connecticut and i was riding on the show friends and i got out of the car from the airport and he was mowing my lawn he was working for a local landscaping company and it didn't feel good at all uh, i felt uh, like a horrible person and a piece of garbage and our eyes met and I know that was a horrible moment for him because literally the last time we had had contact was me saying that to that guy. Do you know what I mean? And uh, you could tell that story if you're a jerk of like, and then he got his because I no, came but home. You, my guess yeah. is that you probably wanted to go talk to him or I something. Wanted that you to, didn't I, I didn't even just know. Lock eyes. I you didn't wanted... even know how to do it, man. I was so young. You know what I mean? But it's a, literally a story that haunts me. I, I'm telling it to you now. I can see it like it was yesterday. And I think that's the evolution as you grow up, maybe away from the snark, if that makes sense. It does, because you have remorse about how you would weaponize it for cruelty, because it would allow you to defend yourself against where your insecurities were. Yeah. And it can be used for evil, but it can also be used for good. So it is nice to see the idea. <laughs> like, it must be hugely flattering to you to win all the awards for, for the lack of a better way of saying it, your soft show. Yeah, like, yeah. Your, your, the show of old man has had kids and learned life lessons and learned that, you know, his wife being more competitive and better at things than him is going to be humbling and uh, he's going to learn to love correctly, love better and work with his friends on stuff that bring him joy. Like, may everyone have success that looks like that. Are you kidding? Is such a deeper value to it. And look, you got to be careful because you, you and I both know it doesn't mean I would still tell you one of my favorite TV shows of all time is the show Veep. And that show is men and women coming up with new ways to be horrible to each other, you know, but at least they've created an environment where, where the, you know, the snark and uh, the voice of the show, you know what you're getting into when you watch one. So I, I don't, I think there's a place for that stuff and it still tickles me endlessly, but man, I wanted to um, exit the world of um, using, you know, it's still out there a lot, using comedy to hurt people. I mean, it's a topic right now that, it's so weird that that's kind of become the shtick, you know what I mean, at least in social media is, you know, somebody makes a mistake and then who can be the most clever in slamming them, you know, uh, and it's just not for me. You know, it, it's I find it I do find it toxic and I find the difference between really well-crafted snark, you know, based around character comedy and let's attack uh, human beings that are real to be, it's just, that's a, a fine line. Now. Oh, but you've come through the gauntlet of what Hollywood is. So which one's harder? The degree of difficulty, making people laugh with sweet or making them laugh with snark. You, you've achieved, you've won the awards for the hardest degree of difficulty, right? Making them laugh with sweet or making them, forcing them to love sweet there aren't a lot of examples of that snark, <laughs> snark is a good deal easier is it not yeah you're right you know but i would i would also 
the weirdest thing about Holly, look, I'm lucky that Sudeikis came into my life because he had a vision of who this guy would be and just kind and considerate and optimistic in a time that we needed that. But he was also very clear, you know, he's like, you can look at that show. Uh, Brett Goldstein, my buddy who plays Roy on that show, he drops F-bombs in every other line and he still lives in the other world. You know what I mean? And so I think that the, the trick to it is that it can't be all one or the other. And I think, you know, you consume uh, uh, a culture the same way I do. I guarantee you there's some shows that on one level you'd go, oh, that was a super snarky and biting show, but that what made you love it was an undercurrent of heart. So um, I think I've been doing the same thing for a long time and that it sometimes is in vogue and sometimes is out of vogue. Well, I wanted to ask you about Sudeikis because it seems like he arrived at this role. Again, I'm judging this from afar, and I imagine you get tired of all the questions of Sudeikis. But his journey has seems to be a spiritual one that has crawled through some shit, and he feels like he is doing work now that is purposeful to him as an inspiration, given whatever he's learned about whatever mistakes he made because he was a ladies' man and he was very successful in Hollywood being a dude who could just charm anybody because of how how naturally funny he was. Look, the, the thing I can tell you that's great about Jason is that he, you know, he manages to walk that line between he's not so pretentious that he thinks that our TV show is changing the world because that would also be insufferable. Uh, but that it really matters to him that he gets to, you know, uh, be in a show and, and be the creator of a show that people will reach out to him personally to say they find it inspiring or comforting. Well, I think and it's that, the that matters up, to I think that it's grown up the grown up version of him doing what you're doing. I don't know. He's, is he younger than you are? Yeah, he's, he's 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 in his mid forties. Yeah. So he lived whatever the Saturday Night Live was, life was famous, rock star, famous, do all the success of comedy stuff, be on the signature show, and then move into a project that has more of his life in it, I guess, like more, more of what he's learned since then. So he can be at least a publicly sweeter, uh, serene version of himself. I've, I find it so impressive because I think that he is, you know, um, meeting the call of, of responsibility to the character that he's created. Uh, but man, what an interesting world to drop yourself into, right? That it's, it's, it's cause he is Ted Lasso. You know what I mean? And now I think, you know, in our world of social media, and that's why it's kind of interesting to me and makes sense that Jason's not even on it, you know, is uh, if Ted Lasso wavered, you know what I mean? People, <laughs> I think people would be really upset by it, you know? So he's, he's, uh, uh, he's rising to the challenge. Do you regard it as your best work or your, like, how do you do this? And I don't know necessarily that uh, you rank these things, but it's your most acclaimed work, but you're in some ways the same guy that was, doing I, i'm i'm guessing you you think there are things you've done that might be better than ted lasso but just weren't noticed the same uh, you know it's uh, a the thing that you have to ditch in tv early on is if you rate things personally based on how they're received you're doomed you know what i mean because you can't control the results. The world is filled with uh, uh, shows that would have been great or pilots that never get made, you know? And so uh, I don't think I'm, I'm you know, I, I think if you went like, hey, what's your most successful show that you're ever involved in? I'd be like, oh, it has to be uh, um, Ted Lasso and maybe Scrubs, you know? And, and, but beyond that, for me, it's the experience. I, I know when I've done a stinker, 
the, you know, and I've done a bunch, the experience and the people and, uh, uh, you know, everybody always asks me like, what was your favorite, uh, show to work on? I'm like, oh man, the first year of scrubs. Cause it's the first year I got to do it all on my own. And I'm still friends with all those people. And we were in a deserted hospital somewhere. It felt like a bunch of students in, in school making something that no one would ever watch, you know? Um, but it also represents your hunger being satiated on the dream, right? Yeah. If you have your own power to create your own thing without a lot of interference, that had to feel like both a finish line and a starting gun. It, it, without a doubt, you know, it's it immediately puts you at a crossroads of what do I want to do next? You know, uh, the second that someone's like, hey, you did what you have to to get to do what you want to. And now, even though you're very young you have to say, what do I want to do for the next 10 years? What do I want to do for the next 20 years? And, and, and that, you know, that opportunity, some people have trouble shifting because everybody in that business works hand to mouth for the first part of their career. And it's very weird when you don't even realize it, but somebody has snapped their fingers and said, you don't have to do things anymore unless you want to, you know, it's a slippery slope and you get caught up in Oh, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I make the wrong but decision? But I imagine, too, reason? you were insufferable at having that much success in your 20s and having it come relatively easy compared to the grind. Like, I would imagine that your confidence would swell Hollywood ego before you know yourself as a man or even as an adult. My guess is that that would be real easy to go to your head. Yeah, you know, I think you have to be... I was very lucky to have a sense of good friends is matter that will constantly knock you down and not let you be that guy. Really, really, really matters. And uh, uh, I had a self-awareness about how silly it all was very early on. Um, I, I don't know where it came from. I, I, I think because my, you know, my dad and my folks were, were, were great about that stuff. But uh, uh, yeah, to, I always fear for these young people that you see, whether it be actors, athletes, uh, writers, whatever, that have a, a, instead of gratefulness, it's replaced with, I deserve this, you know, and entitlement. And I'm like, Ooh, man, this is, you know, a SmackDown is coming for you karmically, eventually, you know, as a human being. A lot has changed over the years, but you know, one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite, another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can, a beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
Were you someone who knew immediately that Scrubs would be successful? Did you have, was there any way, to, What? how would you have measured success at the start of Scrubs? No, I thought, I thought it was going to be a disaster, man. They, back then they didn't do single camera shows and, and nobody really cared. Nobody even came by and, and it was an afterthought of a show. I was just so ha happy to be making something with my friends and, um, and getting to do something that, uh, I used to want to call my production company Noble Failure Productions because I, uh, I always felt like if you can make something that your friends and family would watch and you wouldn't be embarrassed by it, that you're winning the game, you know, and anything after that was gravy. So the coolest thing about Scrubs is I knew my my buddies that I'm still tight with would have gotten a chuckle from it. And that's not what I always did. Sometimes my friends would watch shows I worked on and be like, what are you doing, man? I'm like, what do you mean? What am I doing? What are you doing at that law firm you work for? Don't worry about it. You know, how did you know to treat it as silly? And is it sillier? Is all of it sillier than even you could have imagined, given that now you've gone and gotten real success here? And my guess has been just laughably seduced <laughs> by fraudulent people at every, everywhere you're walking because now they want to be in your life and they never noticed you before. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, but you just described what it means to be a writer, Dan. Good job. <laughs> you know, you, you know, it's, 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 I think if you maintain the persona of metaphorically the guy or girl that never had a date to their junior prom and now you get to get everybody back for that you're doomed okay but if you you know to me the healthiest people uh, of all levels of success in hollywood are the ones that will gladly sit in front of you and say uh, i think it's ridiculous to get compensated and treated the way i am for what i would do for an hourly wage my job is so fun it is so rare. I enjoy talking to you and all the people here because sometimes we forget that not everybody gets to do something that they would actually, that they love. You know, my father retired. I remember saying he worked his whole career for Pitney Bowes. I said, uh, uh, you miss it? He's like selling copy machines. He's like, what are you, what are you talking about? He's like, I don't miss it for a second. You know? And, and he always says to me, if I ever hear you complaining about your lot in life being paid to write jokes, I'm going to reach through the phone and smack you. Oh, I can't imagine the number of people listening to this who listen to our show, at least in part, to just try and grind through a terrible work day because yeah. they don't love what they're doing. Yeah. And they just like to listen for a little while to people who do love what they're doing. It's a gift, right? Am I, you know, look, and there's a, uh, an honor. My dad said I did get great joy out of providing for my family. You know, out of us being able to go on a vacation once in a while, you know, and uh, but he's like, no, I, the second I walked out of that place that I worked from 21 to 60, you know, I didn't think about it another day. You know, I, I'm like, oh, my God, I think I'll remember what I do forever. You know, I love it so much. But I think creatives uh, f like their soul falls as if an anchor landed on it at the thought of going trudging to somewhere where oh, you're yeah. trying to whatever make people laugh make people hope make people think whatever it is that you're looking to do with whatever it is that you make uh the idea that that is a really special kind of unhappy death yeah. if, if i had been an engineer um if i had followed my path that was laid out for me by Cuban exiles of just go down the safe ones, you know, doctor, lawyer, architect, engineer, just go the safe route. I would have been deeply unhappy in all of them. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have been successful either because I would have been deeply unhappy in yeah. all of them. And, and the amount of people that ended up there at no fault of their own, um, 
because or, there was not a mentor to lead you to yes. to poke you in the back in a different direction and to say even though this path is laid out for you there's a a, a scarier path that might be okay you know what i mean man uh, i'm grateful to those people i try to shout them out every chance I well get. but this is ted lasso is soaked in gratitude is it not like yeah. the the entire the, the spirit behind it is that yes, right without a doubt you know it is uh, I remember it when Jason brought in writers and directors to interview, uh, we, no matter how, who was in the room, one of the questions we asked each and every one of them was, uh, who is the biggest mentor in your life? Uh, whether it was getting you out of trouble, pointing you towards the arts, convincing you you weren't to screw up. And the stories were amazing, you know, and uh, it's my favorite thing about the arts, you know, is there's no one without that story. I, I guarantee you, you doing what you do, you have it, you know. Well, I needed permission, of course. You you can't just you can't choose a path that is really hard or unconventional unless somebody when you're young. I mean, I don't I don't know anybody delusionally confident enough to just march up like you seem like you were delusionally confident. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you had like some armor that wrapped whatever your insecurities were, but you're a jock, you're making people laugh, you're you're delusionally confident, you're a screw up because you're probably partying too much, you're you're probably chasing girls all throughout high school and uh and your dad is wondering what you're going to do with your life <laughs> yeah. like what is he ever going to smarten up and not be somebody who's selling <laughs> copiers for 40 years i'll tell you the the uh i just started laughing because i mean a you're on the nose but the my dad's last gasp so when i was out in la painting houses and uh struggling uh i knew my dad you knew your dad's friends right but i knew him i wasn't friends with him okay and my dad's trick, because my dad wanted to be full. I'm supportive, you know, go for it. You know, as long as you're working hard, I believe in you. But then every uh, five weeks, one of my dad's friends would call me and offer me a job and then pretend that my dad didn't put them up to it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to get you back on a path yeah. that was less crazy. But they were the weirdest phone calls because I'd be like, hello? And they'd be like, hey, Bill, it's Doug Benson. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, I was like, it's your dad trying to pull you back into a saner thing. I was like, hey, Mr. Benson. He's like, Doug, it's Doug. He's like, you know what popped into my head? There's this great marketing gig here at Pepsi. It's a true story, you know? And I'm like, tell my dad I'm cool. And he's like, what do you mean, tell your dad? <laughs> he didn't put me up. It's just the first phone call I've ever received from Doug Benson. <laughs> and he's asking me, call me Doug because he's trying to manipulate me into a different career path. It's a great job. You can live right here outside of the city where uh, the main place is here in Jersey. I think you'd love it. Your dad's <laughs> awkward friends, right? Like your dad's, your dad's very poor acting older friends trying to connect with a young person. I can tell them all, man. Hey, Bill, Gary Pavin. Oh, hey, Gary. You know, please do them all. I want to hear. I want to hear all the pitches that you were accepting as you're physically painting houses, you're yeah. painting, because yeah. you're painting houses trying to make a career of this. I tell you, the closest one, uh, and it's weird because I always remember it. So Gary, uh, Gary Pabin, um was my godfather. He was, um, and he ran special events at Madison Square Garden. And he, you know, so he wasn't involved with the sports team, but every time there was a circus or a concert or whatever, and he's like, how'd you kind of like to come live in the city and you can do, you know, you'd be writing the press releases and all that stuff and being the liaison for when it's a uh, next Saturday, Ringling Brothers comes to town next Sunday, Bruce Springsteen and the whatever, you know, and 
it was close, so close in my head to and he's like uh, and the Big East tournament as well and the whatever and obviously you could go to anything in the garden. So there are a lot of temptations and, he's and, putting in front of yeah. you. It got the the manipulation became more and more sophisticated the, as we went through Dad's <laughs> friends. But in my in my head, I imagine my dad in a war room with his buddies going like, "All right, he's obviously not interested in business equipment or snack foods. If we can get him in the arena of sports, maybe we can get him a job." And uh, I almost said yes to that, and I didn't. And it's a true story. I got my first uh, writing gig like three weeks later. You were genuinely tempted. I was like, tempted to go back to the East Coast where all my friends were, and have. And Gary was like, "You can obviously have tickets to the all the events there. Take your buddies to the game in, in your early twenties to be at the outside the garden." That's going not to a mentor. You want. Then that's the universe stepping in to help you with what would have be a happier <sighs> life, right? Because yeah. I imagine as you have. I don't know how often you laugh with tears in your eyes. I imagine a great deal given what you do for yeah. a living and given the things that you've learned. Uh, but I don't know what's being triggered there beyond the funny because you're thinking about how hard your dad was trying to love you from afar in whatever awkward copy salesman way he could. Yeah. Like, what are you doing, son, painting houses and trying to write jokes for a living? Yeah, and, and to still want to protect I believe in you completely, so I would never tell you to consider another job. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have a bunch of forty-year-old men call up and lie to you. <laughs> it's great. It was insane. It was so funny, man. But you learned, hey, Bill Jerry Rhodes. <laughs> I, want, I want to hear all of them. Like, I want to hear their entire pitch. I could sit here and just meet all your dad's uh, old friends, people that you had no like, because if your dad's friends were like my dad's friends. Like, not close at all. No, Just man. the awkward people yeah. who hey, hung Bill. around. Hey, Mr. Rhodes, that's it. That's all you that's, got. That's it for eight years until he offered me a job at Citibank. <laughs> <laughs> and your, your initial reaction is, how did he get this number and why is he calling me? Why is, I haven't thought about you in 10 years. Yeah, all right. Uh, it's good to talk to you, too, I guess. <laughs> I did. You know, the funniest thing to uh, Jerry Rhodes, because everybody did their same thing. And he's like, look, think about it and call me back. I'm like, I don't feel like I need to think about it, Mr. Rhodes. <laughs> I'm like, I feel like I can just end the call now and say, uh, uh, no, thanks. And he goes, good enough. See you around, kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> so now you've got a long line of your dad's friends marching back to your dad's house. Another failure because they couldn't do the act well enough yeah, yeah. to lure you out of that. And each one of them happy to be, have their obligation over. You know what I mean? It was funny, man. Oh, is Hollywood perpetually disappointing to you, or are you yeah. just yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you want it to be something better, purer. You want the arts to like, hey, just push people along in a way that's what less fraudulent, less. No, cutthroat. you know what? It's because the world we live in right now, and how the access to information that everybody has immediately, and uh, and what I mean by that is. The, the the disappointing stories of Hollywood will always be talked about on your show on everybody's fingertips in five minutes. And what bums me out, and my own friends who jokingly called me Hollywood, even to this day still do it because they all stayed in the East Coast, uh, I can't make them believe that 80% of the people that you meet out there are awesome and interesting and fun and not ridiculous and not narcissistic and kind but you are never going to see videos on social media of what they did last night. You know what I mean? And so uh, I think it's a bummer that the few speak for the many. And, uh, and, and I think it's a bummer that the few unfortunately have such a huge platform and a huge spotlight, you know, 
Um, it's it's literally when these things go down in your friends call you up like, do you know them? Do you there? Was it ha-? you know, you're like, why would I ever know them? And why would I ever be there? It's just. Uh, but what are you talking about there? Because I don't know what you're referencing. You're saying the 20 percent that get the fame and the power in Hollywood and do the misbehaving things that are silly and make the rest of the country look at Hollywood and be like, how can you be so disconnected from any real person? Right. You're saying that the people with the power there are... I'm saying that it, it, the best metaphor I can think of right now is um, the news. And no one's going to come on CNN or your local news and go, uh, hey, we're going to do about 15 minutes of really cool, inspiring stories today about people that did nice things and are fighting the good fight and are being kind to each other. You know, it's... it's uh, 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 I can't think of another business other than maybe professional sports where if an athlete missteps and does something awful, uh, uh, understandably, it becomes a story. And then you see the narrative shift to, oh, man, these professional athletes are all horrible and they aren't all horrible. You know, what I mean, it's just Hollywood and sports are where uh, let's just bombard people with the the, the worst stories and have it represent the entire industry over and over. But when you say it's disappointing, why? How? Like, what did you expect? What could be done better? What? How could you have a more favorable viewpoint of this labyrinth that you've had to climb through in order to? Uh, I get, you know, I'm, I'm being selfishly personalizing it, you know, because it's for me amongst my own family and friends. You know, I don't, I don't travel in, in huge Hollywood circles. Uh, you know, for me, it's the the simple fact of if if I was with a friend of mine going, what's it like out there? It's just crazy with people misbehaving and you know cheating on their spouses and and bad behavior and narcotics and this and that and i'd be like no more than any other business the people i spend time with um could be here at your dinner table and unless you asked them what they did you would never know it and they would not be talking about their dough and they would not be narcissistically talking about themselves over and over and over without asking questions about you it's so uh, I just think it's one of those things that the stereotype is so ingrained. I mean, look, we talked a little bit about the Oscars. Uh, what a step back for anybody. If I weren't in the business, I myself would be going, oh, those people are so ridiculous. that They think that this is OK behavior on any level, you know, and uh, uh, it's just one of those industries that the, the misbehavior of the few uh, stereotypically becomes the uh, representation of the many because I've, I've met some of the kindest mentors and some of the most interesting people um, out there. And yeah, I've seen the, the crazy too, but the first thing outweighs the second. How did you go about with the meticulousness of planning the rest of your career once insanity arrives at your doorstep and you can have any project you want? You can do after Ted Lasso, I think you would have the freedom to call your own shot on just about anything you've ever wanted to create in your life. You really have to think, uh, I think you're doomed if you get caught up in this, uh, uh, the rat race aspect of I got to best what I did before. You know, I got to. Uh, if you think that there weren't magical forces and lightning striking involved in grabbing a, a brass ring once in a while, um, then you're doomed because you're going to keep trying to recreate that experience. You never will. Um, so for me, I think the biggest thing was the realization that one out of every two things, if you're amazing, two out of every three things, if you're just really good, is going to be an absolute disaster that that frees you up. 
to go. Let's not worry about how it turns out. Uh, what are you going to prioritize? And for me, looking at the way you do things, my favorite things are when you can sense that people are working with friends and people they would want to be around with anyways. So I prioritized for me doing projects uh, with people that I would want to spend time with were it not work, uh, doing things that even if they're going to fail, um, I, you know, I'm tickled. I'm, I'm, I've been doing this forever. I'm, when I walk in and I'm making a TV show out of Carl Hyacin's books and he was a guy I used to read and look up to his, like, I'm tickled every day, man. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. What makes the writer's room special or what makes the best writer's rooms and how many fights are there in the Ted Lasso writing room because everybody wants to get their shots off? Like what, what is the experience of a writer's room? Like many people, creatives like you who are attracted to the silliness that we do have pointed out to me that this ends up being an improv writer's room. Whether it's very much like a writer's room. Whether you know it or not, that the whole show is that. It's uh, the best it's, it's been a really weird evolution because I'm old enough that the first writer's rooms I was in were um, uh, the, the writing staff would honestly be eight white dudes and a woman, you know, and um, and man, the evolution from that to where it is now is as rapid and as all encompassing as when we say like, oh, we didn't have cell phones when we were kids and how much different that is for people now, you know, but the best thing about it is that your job can be thrown on shorts and a t-shirt um, going to a place that in the best rooms that you're made to feel safe about revealing embarrassing, shameful, ridiculous, funny things about yourself might lead to something creative. Telling a story like I told you about the dude that hit me out of my shoes um, and wasn't wearing socks, by the way, either. That's another image for everybody. You but are the, wearing socks. I wasn't wearing so, socks. So you, Doc so Siders. The, so the Doc Siders are there. But of course, they, you are the 16-year-old <laughs> in every movie you watched I'm in James childhood. Spader. I'm James Spader in the, in all, with his sleeves I, rolled up. I, I, but you even look like it's all of it. You've got the fa the punchable face. You have the, you as a 16-year-old <laughs> condescending the bully and the film uh, the film version of it having just panned to the shoes. And those are the shoes, of yeah, course. And yeah. they're, uh, they're, they're, they're some level of new they're fancy yeah, yeah. they're they're very they that, probably have like little tassels on them you know that area of the country <laughs> dad worked hard to make sure you have nice shoes yeah in the in the movie my body would have been like five feet further back from my shoes because he would have hit me that far out of them but before otherwise you the, before you got to unlet it yeah but yeah but exactly but otherwise it was the exact same as you would have shot it in a film. It was fantastic and bloody too. You know, it just blood all over my and face. And you thought it know. worth it, which seems like a special kind of <laughs> '80s movie, sixteen-year-old dick. That you're like, I know yeah. this is gonna how this is gonna end, but I'm gonna get my shot off first, and <laughs> then I'm gonna regret it. And yeah, we better find that person and like we'll bring you two together and have a healing moment. That you that the, the idea that you would then grow up. And feel bad about that years later. I've connected uh, with him, and uh, and it, we're good. I just don't want to do ever mention his name because in a, in a, in a way because it, it's, it's no, not it's, right. I know. You I know understand. I, mean? I understand why you're doing. You're, you're you're telling the story. It's funny, and you're also ashamed. But that's not who you are anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It, man, just, it just it still haunts me though. It, by the way, it reminded me too because uh, I used to have all these rules that one of my buddies, because uh, he's you know I, I had big friends, so the the guy I told you about that my mentor, uh, uh, Mr. Cox, used to hang out with us at lunch with. He was six uh, eight, weighed two hundred forty pounds, offensive lineman in college, and that was even a worse thing for me in high school because it was like, oh, I can say anything and not usually get beaten up because he's standing next to me. His name's Rick Street, great guy. 
um, real community leader now too, and done great things with his life. Um, but uh, occasionally, if he thought my behavior was bad, because he was a much better person than I, I was, he would be like, you're on your own. You know, and he'd, he would, I'd look over for him and he would be gone, you know. And one of our, <laughs> That's one way of teaching. And, right? I, and one of our favorite discussions was I'm like, now, you know what? It doesn't um, worry me because the way high school works, you know, high school fights, especially if you take two shots and go down, the other guy wins and it's over. And one of the times I got beaten up, dude hit me and I went down and uh, um, this is a freshman year in college. And uh, uh, and then when I was on the ground, he grabbed my ears and was banging my head into the ground. And then afterwards, my friend Rick was like, yeah, he broke your rules. <laughs> you know, he broke your the fights over you won rules. But you've been getting in trouble with your mouth all your life. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. And it's because and what is it because you wield it like a knife, even in adulthood? Because I can imagine this would make an appearance in pickup basketball games, even as an adult. I still relish places you're allowed to do it if it's a safe space. And like I, I the joke I told you that I'd say in basketball, I do. I have my own basketball game now. And uh, uh uh, I rent the gym. All the guys were all friends. There's no special treatment for anybody. But one of the fun things in that game is you can talk smack and make jokes with the, the undercurrent that it's not personal because you all love each other. And I, I relish those when it's safe. I never do it out of a safe environment anymore. What is it about Gary Shandling used to have a famous game, yeah, correct, yeah. that had all of those comedians in it and all of them the were game playing? wasn't good enough, Dan. It was it was a weaker man's game. It's not as good as the game that you're in, right? You're you're here to tell people this is going to get aggregated that the late Gary Shandling's games didn't have any real ballers in it. No, you know what? Uh, I'll, I'll go back because it's uh, uh, there's people love the game. Kevin Nealon played in that game for a long time, and that dude is shockingly tall, and his elbows line up right with uh, the brow above your eye, and uh, uh, he can play. And uh, but I think. There was a, a spirit of fun and camaraderie in that game and love. And I always gravitated to games that were more about um, for the next couple hours, it's not personal. <laughs> let's, you know, let's be, yeah, let's Let, cut each other let, out. Let's feed that cruelty because we're not allowed to do it anywhere else because we're too adult now to, uh, because you're wielding a knife, right? Yeah. Your mouth, how many How many times do you think you've gotten beaten up? Did you win any of these fights? No, no, I'm not good at fight. And I'm, you know, I'm not a, a super strong guy. No, but your mouth would be something. I would imagine that it's double digit fights where no, you No, no, it's saying, you know, because I, I, I wise wised up in college and got thumped a couple times there and then and then called it a day. I would think the pounding of the face, the breaking yeah, that of the rule, that that, that I would think good. that that would end. <laughs> well, because uh, it shattered my young person's reality of anybody can take two shots and go down and that other guy gets to feel like he won and then it's over, you're not going to get hurt. But it's the, it's the, the guy that's like, no, I'm mad enough that I, I want to do damage to you. And then you're like, yeah, I need to. I need to change my way of thinking fast. You know? I am happy to see your success, and I'm happy to see you uh, rewarded by being able to chase the things that you want to chase as you've learned enough to appreciate them. It's It's been very cool to uh, watch you uh, rewarded for things that you probably think you should have been rewarded for a long time ago, but people just noticed because they just got here because mm -hmm. it got on Apple TV and Sudeikis made it a popular trendy thing, and then Bill Lawrence gets to finish uh, – Finish these this thirty year run. What is it? It's thirty. It's about thirty years, right? Yeah, so man. I, I I 
I've been doing this for 31 years now. It's crazy. So I didn't mean to say finish it, but get it. It's okay. Get it's it close to true. <laughs> get, but get it restarted with something that uh, that births even more freedom and the ability to actually help some people with being able to pass down, being able to be a mentor to others because you're you're handing down opportunity now. And I'm not being a, a, a sick of fan, but one of the reasons I'm a fan of of this show, besides it's my vibe and it's it's funny, uh, is um, for people that don't get to see it. Uh, up close you do the same thing here and uh it's like-minded in not only the way people treat each other but uh uh watching people realize opportunity because of the not you know the seizing opportunity because the opportunity is given to them by somebody else i find it inspiring uh i i it keeps me going in a time that i think it'd be easy for everybody just to especially with the way the world is to just be gloom and doom and, and pack up and go I'm going to just vibe and enjoy my family and do nothing else. I, I, really I made this cool. so biographical. Thank you. Yes. I'm sorry. Thank you. No, but you uh, I, I, you seem to really be bothered by how cruel things have gotten. You seem. It bumps under, me. Yeah. I mean, how could it not? It right? really does, man. The, the dialogue out there is so toxic, you know, um, it, that when you uh, uh, find people that are trying to ride whatever ship they're on through that storm, man, I, I, uh, I want to get on board as much as I can, you know. But do you find it? Are you finding yourself dispirited, just, uh, or you hide in your safe spaces because too much of turning on the television or walking outside has division, has conflict, has cruelty, has people not wanting to be grateful or thankful or mentor or whatever the kindnesses are that that, that you're selling that day because you feel them in your heart. I'm painfully optimistic. Okay, is that. Uh, I, I really look the Ted Lasso experience that people embrace that show in, 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 you know, it feeds it for me. I go, wow, man, people are craving this sense of optimism and kindness, you know, and shoot, by the way, not to shine a light on him to, uh, I, I took Roy out to dinner. Um, uh, by the way, is it, is Roy out there? Uh, yeah. So I took Roy out to dinner. I was just poking fun nicely. I promise. And, um, he's such a polite, gracious young young guy that um um not my, so young anymore i know actually. i know but I, I took a, he, he pretends to be young but he's he's a million years old okay good to know he's older than me the uh uh but he was uh we went to you know i'm like hey man i'm, I'm taking out dinner it's on me and sometimes when you you do that people are uh, uh especially because he's so respectful and lovely to me are very careful to not yeah roy had no problem ordering whatever the hell he oh, wanted yeah. oh yeah no he's got no problem with that <laughs> I've seen him leave Prime 112 with bushels filled with food in his arms, yeah. in, in his shirt it pocket. Me joy, he, man. Does, <laughs> he has no, and he's been. I would say that he has eaten more free snacks in, than anyone in the history of the medium around here, given that he spent 20 years just eating stuff that's around here. I earned it, Dan. <laughs> long career of mine. Yes, yes, a long career, as he calls you a young man. Uh, thank you for spending the time with us, Bill. I appreciate it. It's always good seeing you. Anytime. It's cool to be part of the gang. I really appreciate it. A lot has changed over the years, but you know one thing that has the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? I pose this question to you. I don't know. You tell me right now. Okay, yeah, that's good. I like that. Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. The best thing for me about a nice Miller Lite is when I'm on the boat, I bring those tall... I, I don't even go for the, the regular 12-ounce cans. I hit the tall boy 16-ounce cans. They usually come in a four-packs wherever I buy beer. You put it in the cooler. You put some ice on top. The moment you take it out, 
and the sun reflects off that gold top of Miller Lite with that white can. A beautiful sight out on the open ocean. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling, and it tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. 